Kwak Warriors, Tansei, Sego, Ani Buju, Kwei, Nin Deluisi, Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. Part of defending our sovereignty is protecting our people from harm, and that's why today's podcast is about the radical change we need to root out racism in policing and how we can stop defunding our own oppression. Today I want to talk about some of the core issues that I've covered in my recent publications and videos on racism against Black and Indigenous peoples in Canada with a view to putting the calls to defund the police in context. Over the last month, we have seen protests, marches, and rallies all over Canada and the U.S. protesting about ongoing police racism and violence against Black and Indigenous peoples. The spark was the killing of George Floyd, a 46-year-old Black man and father who was killed by police in Minneapolis, Minnesota during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill. Derek Chauvin, a white police officer, kneeled on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes while Floyd cried out that he could not breathe. Chauvin was aided by other officers who helped restrain Floyd, while another one stood guard so that no one could intervene to save Floyd. As a result, Floyd died and no aid was ever provided by the police officers present. All of this was captured on video and sparked thousands of protests in every single state in the United States, in most provinces in Canada, and in well over 60 countries around the world. These protests continue even today. Tensions have already been building because of the violent police killing of 26-year-old black woman and EMT Breonna Taylor from Louisville, Kentucky. Just weeks before the killing of George Floyd, it's reported that three plainclothes Louisville Metro Police barged into Brianna's home on a no-knock warrant and did not announce themselves as police. Assuming these were armed intruders, Taylor's boyfriend allegedly shot and injured a plainclothes officer and police in turn fired over 20 shots, shooting Taylor eight times causing her death. Neither Taylor nor her boyfriend were the targets of the no-knock warrant. Sadly, these are not isolated incidents. In 2014, Eric Garner, a 43-year-old black man and father to six children, was killed by New York police officer Daniel Pantaleo during an arrest for allegedly selling loose cigarettes. Pantaleo, a white police officer, used a chokehold to restrain Garner even once Garner was on the ground. Pantaleo continued to choke Garner while Garner repeatedly said that he couldn't breathe. None of the other officers at the scene intervene and Garner died as a result. Video evidence taken by a bystander sparked outrage and mass protests calling out police racism and violence against black people. These are just several of the hundreds of black people killed by police in the U.S. in recent years. And although many Canadians often point to the U.S. and believe that they are much worse than us, the fact is, is that police in Canada brutalize and kill black peoples at grossly disproportionate rates as well. 
In our last two Warrior Life podcasts, we heard from two well-known Black community activists, organizers, and authors, Desmond Cole and Robin Maynard. They talk about the high rates of police violence against Black communities in Canada and share some of their research. They also share their views on the roots of police racism, as well as some of the solutions being advocated by Black communities moving forward. I strongly encourage you to take a listen to their podcasts and read their books. Desmond's national best-selling book is called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power, published by Doubleday, where he chronicles the struggle against racism and exposes how entrenched it is. Robin's book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, is published by Fernwood Publishing and is another award-winning book confronting state surveillance, criminalization, and violence against black people in Canada. And I'll be sure to post links to their books in the description box. Desmond and Robin and many in the Black Lives Matter movement and others in the black community have also stood with indigenous peoples in our indigenous grassroots movement for justice as well. They have stood by us during Idle No More, Wet'suwet'en Strong, Justice for Colton Bushy, Justice for Tina Fontaine, and so many others. It's really important that we stand together in solidarity and help lift up each other's voices to seek justice for Black and Indigenous peoples. This kind of solidarity has grown strong over the years, but hasn't been without its bumps along the way. In order to have strong unity between groups, it's an ever-evolving relationship which evolves and adapts and learns from one another. At the same time, we also make sure to respect that we have different histories, experiences, politics, and sometimes very different demands. We know that it's not a race to the bottom, nor is it a competition. We know that the statistics, root causes, and rates of state-based violence are not always the same in every region for every group, but that doesn't detract from our work. We are supporting one another in the fight for justice to save Black and Indigenous lives, and we come together on areas where our movements overlap, while we respect each other's space when we are advocating on issues that are different or specific to Black communities or Indigenous peoples only. During the last month of protests, Indigenous peoples have joined Black Lives Matter marches, rallies, teach-ins, panels, and advocacy and black activists have made a point of including indigenous voices in this movement and supporting our calls for justice against police racism. And it is through our collective solidarity that we'll be stronger to advance justice for both groups. In addition to the recent killings of black peoples in both Canada and the US, it's important to note that Canada faces a long history of police killings of indigenous peoples. However, just during the COVID-19 pandemic, when you would think interactions between police and Indigenous peoples would be even less, there have been at least eight reported deaths of Indigenous peoples at the hands of police. Within the span of only 10 days, Winnipeg police killed three Indigenous peoples, Jason Collins, Stuart Kevin Andrews, and Aisha Hudson, who was only 16 years old. Regis Korczynski Paquette, a black and indigenous woman, died after Toronto police came to her apartment and she subsequently fell from her balcony. 
The Edmonston Police Force in New Brunswick shot and killed Chantel Moore during a wellness check. And the RCMP are reported to have been involved in the death of Abraham Natanine from Nunavut, Everett Patrick in BC, and the shooting death of Rodney Levi from Metabinagia in New Brunswick. And that doesn't include the many cases of brutal beatings like those experienced by Chief Alan Adam at the hands of Alberta RCMP, or the beating that was reported by Dene Benjamin Manuel by the Yellowknife RCMP. And recently, the Legal Services Board of Nunavut called for an investigation into Nunavut RCMP for what they called persistent racism towards Indigenous women that included numerous incidents of police abuse, excessive violence, and humiliating and degrading strip searches. To say that we have a police racism problem against Indigenous peoples in Canada would be an understatement. But it isn't news. Canada has known this for decades. A brief overview of some of Canada's own reports, inquiries, and commissions shows that anti-Indigenous racism in policing and justice is a long-standing and well-known problem. In 1989, the Royal Commission on the Donald Marshall Jr. prosecution involved the review of a Mi'kmaq man who spent over a decade in prison after being wrongfully targeted by police, convicted of murder because the entire system was infected with racism against Native peoples. The Donald Marshall Jr. Royal Commission found that the criminal justice system failed Marshall at, quote, virtually every turn due to the fact that Donald Marshall Jr., is a native. The findings were made public and criminology classes in universities all across the country have studied the findings of this commission at one point or another. The Marshall Inquiry has been referred to every time someone asks the questions about the over-representation of Indigenous peoples in jail. His story inspired the book Justice Denied, The Law versus Donald Marshall, as well as the film called Justice Denied, it's not like people don't know that racism in the justice system and policing was a problem. Several years later, in 1996, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples heard testimony from Indigenous peoples all over Canada. It issued a multi-volume report with thousands of pages and hundreds of recommendations. And while they didn't specifically investigate police racism, they did hear testimony about racism in policing, including testimony from Indigenous women. And they specifically noted, quote, Our women face racism and systemic stereotyping at every turn. For Aboriginal women, this racism and stereotyping is rampant right through the system. And they noted that, quote, our women face racism and systemic stereotyping at every turn. For Aboriginal women, this racism and stereotyping is rampant right through the system, from the police to the courts, child welfare agencies to income security. Several years later, that was followed by the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba. Helen Betty Osborne was a young Cree woman from Norway House First Nation in northern Manitoba, whose friends describe her as well-liked and who had planned to go to college and become a teacher. 
She was forced, however, to attend school off reserve in the town of the Paw because there was no secondary school in her First Nation. In 1971, while she was walking down Third Street, she was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and brutally murdered by four non-Indigenous men. It took 16 years for only one of the men involved to be charged and convicted. The other men were either not charged, not convicted, or received immunity. And barely a year after that one conviction in Osborne's case, an unarmed Indigenous man named J.J. Harper was gunned down by Winnipeg police. John Joseph Harper was a leader from Wasagamac, an O.G. Cree-speaking First Nation in Manitoba, and worked as the executive director of the Island Lake Tribal Council. His death, together with the very delayed and lone conviction in the Helen Betty Osborne case, led to calls for an inquiry to deal with the racism experienced by Indigenous peoples at the hands of the police, not only in terms of their failure to investigate crimes, but also in terms of police violence against Indigenous peoples. An inquiry was eventually struck, and the subsequent report of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba concluded in 1999 that, quote, the justice system has failed Manitoba's Aboriginal people on a massive scale. It went on to express specific concern for the experiences of Indigenous women and children, saying, quote, Aboriginal women and their children suffer tremendously as victims in contemporary Canadian society. They are the victims of racism, of sexism, and of unconscionable levels of domestic violence. And the justice system has done little to protect them from any of these assaults. These findings were also made public and garnered a great deal of media attention, but no substantive action was taken at the provincial or national level. Immediately following the inquiry, the Manitoba legislature set up a scholarship fund in honor of Helen Betty Osborne, and the Manitoba Minister of Justice issued a public apology to the Osborne family for the failures in the justice system. Yet because no substantive actions were taken, the rates of police racism and violence against Indigenous peoples in Manitoba continues to get worse, not better. Several years after the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba, in 2004, the Saskatchewan Commission on First Nations and Métis Peoples and Justice Reform issued its findings in a comprehensive investigation in relation to all components of the criminal justice system. They were tasked with reviewing policing, courts, prosecutions, alternative measures, access to legal counsel, corrections, including community corrections, youth justice, community justice, and victim services. And the report's major conclusion was that racism is a major obstacle to healthy relations with First Nations and police organizations. This report was again widely publicized, especially in Saskatchewan, and appeared to be timed around the very explosive inquiry that also got released in the same year relating to the police-involved death of Neil Stonechild in a racist police practice known as Starlight Tours. 
Neil Stonechild was a young Cree man who died of hypothermia after being apprehended, detained, handcuffed, and driven to a remote location out of town by police officers. This is a practice commonly known as a starlight tour, where police pick up Indigenous men, drive them to the outskirts of town, sometimes without their coats and shoes, where they freeze to death in cold weather. Several years after the Stonechild Inquiry, in 2007, the Ipperwash Inquiry looked at the police shooting of unarmed Indigenous person Dudley George in Ontario. This time, the focus was on the Ontario Provincial Police, who shot the unarmed land defender Dudley George in 1995 over lands claimed by Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. The report of the Ipperwash Inquiry was released in 2007 and concluded that cultural insensitivity and racism was not restricted to a few bad apples within the OPP, but was much more widespread. This report was very widely publicized and the case was documented in a book called One Dead Indian, The Premier, The Police and the Ipperwash Crisis in 2001. It was also adapted into a television movie by the same name. In 2010, the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry, also referred to as the Opal Inquiry, which was highly discredited because it privileged police officers over Indigenous women and their representative organizations to the extent that many participants withdrew from participating. That said, the inquiry found blatant failures and systemic bias against women victims, many of whom were Indigenous. In 2013, the Human Rights Watch report completed an investigation into stories of police abuse in northern British Columbia and detailed a shocking number of reports of physical and sexual abuse committed by the police against Indigenous women and girls. A common theme throughout the report was the fear of retaliation by police if any of these Indigenous women and girls spoke out or filed a complaint. The fear was so acute that the investigators likened it to the fear that women have in post-conflict countries where state abuses are rampant. Quote, the palpable fear of the police was accompanied with a notable matter-of-fact manner when mentioning mistreatment by police, reflecting a normalized expectation that if one was an Indigenous woman or girl, police treatment is to be anticipated. The individuals that did participate in the investigation reported crimes of unprovoked police beatings, rapes, and even stalking against both Indigenous women and girls, all of whom were unarmed. Police have attacked unarmed girls with batons, attack dogs, and even tasers. One girl reported that she had her arm broken by the same police officer who had originally been called to protect her from an abusive older boyfriend. Those that attempted to file complaints against the police report that they have still not received justice. After many decades of this kind of behavior, it is no wonder Indigenous women and girls are fearful of the police and often hesitate to call them even when they need protection from violent partners. In 2017, Human Rights Watch did another report, this time in Saskatchewan. They documented Indigenous women's accounts of police neglect, 
failing to protect them in regards to domestic abuse, as well as police sexual harassment and physical assault, as well as inappropriate strip searches. These women also reported that they would not file a report against the police as they feared the police would retaliate by harassing them or assaulting them. In 2019, the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls found that all levels of governments and their agencies were guilty of historic and ongoing genocide, including police forces. They found that Canada engaged in a manifest pattern of conduct that demonstrated their intention to destroy Indigenous peoples, and in so doing, specifically targeted Indigenous women and girls in a form of racialized and sexualized violence. The National Inquiry was specifically precluded from investigating police as perpetrators, which is a significant deficiency in the Inquiry. Nevertheless, they called out racism in policing and called on Canada to enact independent oversight to investigate instances of police abuse against Indigenous women and girls, including sexual assaults. In the same year, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, Its Causes and Consequences, Dubravka Simonovich, had visited Canada and heard from Indigenous women about ongoing genocide, sexualized violence, including police racism, brutality, sexualized violence, and the killings of Indigenous women by police. She found that sexualized violence against Indigenous women and girls is deeply rooted in what she called gendered colonization, and that there was an urgent need to address violence against Indigenous women and girls by both policing and corrections officials. She specifically referenced the RCMP, which has faced public scrutiny for their culture of bullying, harassment, and dysfunction within their own ranks. The Special Rapporteur also referenced a major report done on the Canadian Armed Forces, which condemned the sexualized culture and hostility towards women in the Armed Forces, which was conducive to sexual harassment and assaults as well as a very problematic lack of reporting. She recommended national data collection on all violence against Indigenous women and girls, to ban strip searches, civilian oversight of policing that included Indigenous oversight, an external review of police for racism and abuse by police and corrections officers, and to implement a zero-tolerance and full police accountability structure. And there are so many other reports. I mean, this podcast could go on for hours. There's the investigation that was done in Thunder Bay, the Viennes Commission that was done in Quebec, and others that document evidence of systemic racism against Indigenous peoples in both policing and the justice system. So I have a hard time accepting that the head of the RCMP Brenda Lucky has no idea what systemic racism is or how some of the provincial premiers could have the face to deny systemic racism against Indigenous peoples. So, in case those reports were not enough, one need only review some of the statistics in relation to police racism and violence against both Black and Indigenous peoples to see just how prevalent it is. 
Anti-black and anti-indigenous racism in policing takes many forms, from racial profiling, carding, planting evidence and over-arrests, to harassment, physical beatings, sexual assaults, and killings. In the U.S., black people are three times more likely to be killed by police than white people, and one and a third times more likely to be unarmed than white people. Each year, the top spot for those killed by police in the United States alternates between black and indigenous peoples. The Guardian newspaper's database that counted monitored the number of people killed by the police in the United States and noted that in 2015, it was black people who occupied the top spot of those killed by law enforcement. In 2016, it was Native Americans. The American Civil Liberties Union reported that over a 10-year period, from 2005 to 2015, thousands of police-involved killings resulted in only 54 officers being charged with a crime, but the majority of those were either cleared or acquitted. The Washington Post also did an extensive analysis and found that the majority of those few police officers that ever were charged were white and the majority of those that they killed were black. Those who were actually convicted of a crime spent as little as a few years or a few weeks in prison. Prosecutors interviewed for this investigation admitted that they were reluctant to charge the police, even if they believed that the police had committed a crime. Anti-black and anti-indigenous racism and violence in policing is as big an issue in Canada as it is in the U.S., we only need to look at the facts. CBC conducted an extensive investigation into fatal encounters with police in Canada over a 17-year period from 2000 to 2017 and found that while black people are less than 3% of the population, there were 9% of those killed by police. That's three times their population. In places like Toronto, the Ontario Human Rights Commission found that black people were 20 times more likely to be shot by police. In the same CBC report, they found that while Indigenous peoples were less than 4% of the population, they made up more than 15% of those killed by the police nationally. Indigenous peoples are twice as likely to be killed by the police than white people, and almost 10 times more likely in provinces like Quebec. In places like Manitoba and Saskatchewan, Indigenous peoples represent 58 and 62% of all of those killed by police. In fact, Winnipeg has one of the highest rates of police killings of Indigenous peoples in the country. While Indigenous peoples make up only 10% of the population in Winnipeg, we make up 64% of those killed by police. A recent analysis from the Globe and Mail found that over a 10-year period, more than 36% of those killed by the RCMP were Indigenous. However, experts caution that because the RCMP does not track race, that this number is likely much higher. And we can't expect much more police accountability in Canada than we can in the US. The same CBC investigation, Deadly Force, found that of the 461 cases analyzed, only 18 officers were ever charged, but only two were ever convicted. 
The Toronto Star did an expose on Ontario's Special Investigation Unit, the SIU, a team which probes police-involved deaths and serious injuries and question whether cops are above the law. The Star's investigation showed that out of 3,400 SIU investigations, criminal charges were laid against only 95 police officers, only 16 had ever been convicted, and only three have ever seen any jail time. In other words, less than half of 1% of officers were ever convicted. The Winnipeg Free Press has also exposed many problems with the Winnipeg Police Service, which has been reported to have created numerous roadblocks for the province's independent investigation unit and undermined journalists' ability to conduct investigative reporting. Blocking interview requests and refusing to turn over documents is likely part of the reason for less than a handful of charges against officers in the investigative unit's history. CBC shows this trend also continues in Quebec, where its so-called police watchdog, the Bureau des Enquêtes Indépendants, which was created three years ago to review serious injuries and deaths caused by police, doesn't seem to have done its job. In its 126 cases, 71 of which were deaths, no officers were ever charged. And no doubt, if we had public access to all the complaints that were ever brought against the RCMP, we'd find similar, if not worse, outcomes. But we shouldn't be surprised. The Canadian press's own investigation found that most police watchdog investigators are white, male, former police officers. The numbers speak for themselves. Police investigating police doesn't work, nor does police reforming police work. As a result, police have been able to use their own white male officers to give themselves a high degree of immunity from their racist acts of violence against black and indigenous peoples. And we can't forget the other ways in which police racism negatively impacts the lives of black and indigenous peoples. And we can't forget the other ways in which police racism negatively impacts the lives of black and indigenous peoples through racial profiling and targeting of black and indigenous peoples that leads to their disproportionate rates of arrests, criminal charges, and the number and seriousness of those charges. And while it is true that racism persists within the entire justice system, from lawmakers, police, lawyers, judges, to prison officials, there is no doubt that the police are the primary feeder group for the pipeline from blackness and indigeneity to prison. We cannot talk about police racism without also looking at incarceration rates. CTV News reported that black people make up only 3.5% of Canada's population but represent more than 7.3% of those incarcerated in federal prisons. And that's more than double their population. And those numbers are increasing. In the 10-year period between 2003 and 2013, their incarceration rate increased by 90%. 
In the 10-year period between 2003 and 2013, their incarceration rate increased by 90%. And we know that these numbers are much larger in different provinces. Take the province of Nova Scotia, for example, where black people are only 2% of the population, but represent 14% of the jail population. That's seven times their population amount. Just this past January in 2020, Dr. Ivan Zinger, who heads the Office of the Correctional Investigator, issued an urgent statement about the rates of Indigenous peoples in federal prisons being at historic highs. While Indigenous peoples make up only 5% of the Canadian population, they represent more than 30% of those in federal prisons and growing every year, despite a decline in incarceration for other groups. Those statistics are even worse for Indigenous women who now make up 42% of the prison population and rising. We know that provincial incarceration rates can also be much higher, especially in provinces like Saskatchewan, where the Indigenous incarceration rate is 76%, and in Manitoba, where the rate is 80%. A Statistics Canada report released in 2018 shows that while Indigenous youth make up only 7% of Canada's youth population, they represent more than 46% of all youth in corrections. The rate of Indigenous youth incarceration has more than doubled in the last decade, despite youth corrections declining for other groups. Similarly to the adult statistics, in provinces like Saskatchewan, the Indigenous youth incarceration rates are much higher than the national average. In Manitoba, Indigenous youth incarceration rates are 81% for boys and 82% for girls. In Saskatchewan, they are an astounding 92% for Indigenous boys and 98% for Indigenous girls. The former correctional investigator Howard Sapers says that these numbers demonstrate systemic biases that account for the overrepresentation. And the current correctional investigator, Ivan Zinger, says that the steady increase of Indigenous incarceration shows a disturbing and entrenched imbalance. Calling this a national travesty, he explained that Corrections Canada has recused itself from responsibility and appears impervious to change. He also said that tweaks around the edges of the prison system will not work and that dramatic changes are required. And we couldn't agree more, but we are thinking about much more radical changes to policing in prisons than have so far been advanced by inquiries, commissions, and reports. And who are in these prisons? The statistics show that a fifth of Indigenous peoples in prisons came from the residential school system, and two-thirds were impacted by the child welfare system. We know that Indigenous children in foster care have a higher chance of ending up in youth corrections than getting a high school diploma. They are four times more likely to be sexually abused in foster care in provinces like BC, and the majority of the victims are Indigenous girls. They are also more likely to be the victims of human traffickers and or be one of the many abused, exploited, disappeared, or murdered Indigenous women and girls. Of all the women in adult prison, 
more than 85% of them have been physically or sexually assaulted or both. Many of them are in prison for charges related to trying to navigate their poverty and or responses to situations of violence. And the majority are also mothers. We can't forget about those who are incarcerated for exercising their inherent Aboriginal treaty and land rights to try to protect their lands and waters in defiance of governments trying to develop their lands or extract resources without our free prior and informed consent. Nor can we forget about those engaged in traditional economic practices related to the tobacco trade or gaming or commercial fisheries who have been targeted, criminalized and incarcerated. Our very identities as Indigenous peoples have been criminalized and the growing incarceration rate show no sign of stopping anytime soon. So, where do we go from here? We know that neither governments nor police forces respond to the majority of justice inquiries or their recommendations to address systemic and widespread racism in policing. And when they do, they cherry-pick from the recommendations those that will not substantially alter the status quo in policing. But this sort of tinkering around the edges not only fails to address racism, but it does the exact opposite. It preserves the status quo, which is inherently racist and violent against black and indigenous peoples. Like I mentioned in this week's YouTube video called Defund the Police, we can't forget that police in Canada were used to remove indigenous peoples from our lands and contain us on reserves. This also happened in the US to Native Americans, but also included slave patrols to police black slaves. As institutions, police forces in Canada and the US are inherently racist. But even outside of their racist origins, policing institutions are inherently violent. They are trained for and focused on the heavily armed and violent suppression of whatever the state deems to be a threat, including drugs, migration, gatherings and protests, free speech, and other activities which often target oppressed communities. In modern times, the police, especially the RCMP, are usually the first responders to Indigenous peoples defending their lands, waters, and treaty rights. They are also the first on the scene when Black people peacefully organize to resist ongoing racialized violence and discrimination against their communities. We have seen nothing short of police riots and brutal violence on our TVs and on social media for the last month. Police are literally showing us why we're calling to defund the police. Even the many ways in which we try to navigate the state-created and maintained impoverishment of our communities have been criminalized, as have our resulting trauma, addiction, and mental health responses. It has even come to the point where police will utilize police dogs, tasers, and guns to respond to someone with a mental health crisis or contemplating suicide, treating them more like dangerous criminals instead of human beings in vulnerable conditions that need compassion and specialized supports. It's clear that racist violence is a form of terrorism that has plagued Canada for decades, even centuries. 
It is clear that racist violence is a form of terrorism that has plagued Canada for decades, even centuries. The white superiority that underpins the creation and development of Canada as a country can be found in all of its systems, society, workplaces, governments, police forces, and laws, policies, and economies. Systemic racism in Canada is the unquestioned social systems that create and maintain poverty and disadvantage, that serve to marginalize and dispossess, and allow violence and killings to continue unabated against Black and Indigenous peoples. Silence is violence, but it is also complicity, and every government has been complicit in the violent acts committed upon Black and Indigenous peoples by police forces. Every day that we as a society let this continue is more lives that are brutalized, traumatized, and lost from unfettered police racism and violence, or criminalized and incarcerated forever impacting our life chances and opportunities. And there have been many calls to take action against police racism and violence. There are still hundreds of unimplemented recommendations from numerous justice inquiries and commissions that need to be fully considered, including some of those that we reviewed in this podcast. However, it seems to be the general consensus that reform is not possible. Tinkering around the edges of the status quo merely preserves that status quo and won't end police racism and violence. What is needed is radical change, and that only comes with radical measures. And some of those radical measures include the free and open access to police disciplinary files, investigations, reports, statistics, and other police data to ensure our ability to hold officers to account while ensuring privacy protections for their victims. Mandatory data collection on all instances of police complaints, whether or not those complaints resulted in discipline, including instances of racial profiling, targeting, carding, harassment, brutality, sexualized violence, and killings, which includes race and sex-based data of their victims. The repeal of any and all legal and policy-based partial, qualified, or full police immunity for instances of racial profiling, harassment, brutality, and sexualized violence. The explicit legislation of a zero-tolerance policy for racial profiling, harassment, brutality, and sexualized violence in policing so that police forces cannot keep employed or contract, or consult, or rehire any police officer dismissed because of this zero-tolerance policy. The demilitarization of police forces, especially the RCMP. A comprehensive review of all police forces in Canada by independent experts, not current or former police officers, police consultants, or others who work with police, and must include Black and Indigenous experts. Defunding police forces in significant amounts, like 50% or more, depending on the particular force, the population, and other relevant factors. 
you'll notice that I didn't include in this list the usual recommendations of cultural awareness training, sensitivity training, community liaisons, police in parades, police in powwows, or hiring more black and indigenous peoples. I'm not saying not to train police officers or not to hire black and indigenous peoples. What I'm saying is that these actions do not target and address the root causes of police brutality and killings of black and indigenous peoples. Because the problem has never been in black or indigenous cultures. The problem has always been in police culture. The root cause of the disproportionate police violence and killings of black and indigenous peoples is systemic racism and violence within those police forces set in a context of a widely corrupt and unaccountable police culture. That is the problem. That's what we need to root out. And when I say corrupt, I'm talking about the blue wall of silence or the blue code of silence where police officers fail to report the wrongdoings of their fellow officers, and even worse, when they engage in perjury, falsifying evidence, planting evidence, interfering with judicial processes, and or intimidating victims and witnesses. Again, you don't have to take my word for this. You only need to read the RCMP report, which found hundreds of its officers engaged in these kinds of corrupt acts, or the many individual cases of police corruption all across the country, like the two Calgary police officers found guilty of corruption in Alberta and sentenced to prison who just lost their appeals. Our attempts to address the deep-rooted racism in policing is hampered by the blue wall of silence and other forms of police corruption, and so getting over that won't be an easy task. If we are truly to decolonize state interactions with black and indigenous communities and end the criminalization of our communities, then we must seriously consider defunding the police. And for those who are concerned about defunding the police, then let me put it to you another way. We could start by defunding racism in policing. And you will see that by defunding racism in policing, that we'd actually be defunding the police by far more than 50%, and we would have a real shot at saving lives. More importantly, we'd stop funding our own oppression. Keep in mind, it's not just the number of police and equipment that we pay for. We also pay for the exorbitant costs to insulate them from accountability. I recently explained what defunding the police means in my YouTube video. And I, I'll summarize it like this. If we defunded racism in policing, we would save on the following. One, millions in individual lawsuits, legal fees, and settlements against police forces for racialized violence against black and indigenous peoples. Two, hundreds of millions in class action suits against the RCMP and their legal fees and settlements for widespread abuses within the force, including sexual harassments, assault, bullying, abuse, and racism. Number three, 
hundreds of millions in Indigenous-specific class action suits against the RCMP and their legal fees and settlements for racism, brutality, sexualized violence, and the killings of Indigenous peoples and the neglect of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls cases. Number four, millions of dollars would be saved by defunding the immunity around police racism. And that means millions would be saved in the salaries that go to police officers who are suspended with pay, sometimes for many years, plus their legal fees for officers who are charged with serious crimes like gang rapes, human trafficking, child porn rings, brutality, and the killings of black and indigenous peoples. We could get rid of them instead of pay for them. Number five, millions of dollars in racialized surveillance, monitoring, and reporting on black and indigenous peoples, which includes expensive high-tech video surveillance, face identification, and information sharing with other organizations like CSIS, DND, and other police forces. We would save hundreds of millions if we demilitarize police forces, which is a form of racism because the militarized police forces, especially like the RCMP, are primarily used to target and suppress indigenous peoples and indigenous rights and black resistance to oppression. And finally, number seven, we would save millions of dollars if we took police officers out of Indigenous communities and predominantly Black communities and schools. Remember, we're the ones paying for racism in policing. Black and Indigenous peoples, first and foremost, pay with our freedom, our liberty, and our lives. But we all pay for racism in policing, literally, in terms of all the types of taxes, fees, fines, levies, tickets, and surcharges we pay annually to different levels of government that gets transferred to fund police forces and racism in policing. The exorbitant costs of racism in policing, which amounts to billions in total, could be put into much-needed social programs, services, and supports that have long been neglected. This is especially true in so many indigenous communities that lack even the basics like clean drinking water, food, or access to safe housing. We could redirect the hundreds of millions from racism and policing to community alternatives like First Nation peacekeepers or other safety measures that are being advanced by black communities. If we defund racism in policing and the infrastructure that defends, perpetuates, and insulates racism in policing, not only will this significantly reduce the number of police officers, but it could potentially gut their racist mandates. And for the few police officers that remain, they can restructure and refocus and actually target keeping us safe and secure. No one is saying that we don't want safety measures, but we want ones that actually keep us safe, not brutalize, imprison, or kill us at crisis level rates. By defunding racism and policing upfront, Think of how this will automatically reduce prison populations and serve as a way to help defund prisons as well. 
These two racist institutions are connected, and we need to find ways to dismantle them both and re-envision our societies. The status quo will fight to preserve itself, and there will be resistance from governments, police forces, and the prison industry, and all those corporations who profit from our oppression. Nothing less then radical changes will be able to dismantle the status quo and force the real changes that are needed. Governments and police forces will not do this willingly. We need to keep pushing in solidarity to make it happen. Our very lives depend on it. But I believe in the power to make it happen. Every single advance that we've ever had in society has come from people coming together and marching in the streets and demanding better. And I believe it'll happen with Black and Indigenous peoples and Canadians standing together in solidarity to accept no less. Thank you all for tuning into my show. I really hope that you found this episode helpful in working through some of the context that's related to police racism and violence against Black and Indigenous peoples in Canada and looking ahead towards solutions. Our hearts and prayers go out to the many families whose family members were killed by police and make a commitment to action to seek out justice for their losses. And I don't speak for everyone in this movement. I'm offering my insight based on my research and work and experience in this area and in solidarity with many grassroots organizations and groups. I do it with great respect for those advocating for different approaches that they think best meets the needs of their communities. I'll make sure to post links to some of my most recent publications upon which this podcast is based and some additional resources from our fellow Black and Indigenous activists in case you want more detailed information. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also check out my website at www.pampometer.com where you can access all of my podcasts, my YouTube videos, my Indigenous Nationhood blog, my publications, and more, including my new Warrior Kids podcast. In our new Warrior Kids podcast, we celebrate everything Indigenous and try to teach kids how to be social justice and earth justice warriors to help make the world a better place. I'm also really excited to promote my new book, Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence by Fernwood Publishing. And if you use the code WARRIOR10, you get a discount of 10% when you pre-order the book. Thanks as always for your support, and more importantly, all the actions you are taking to push for change. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.